Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And as we start inching closer to peak season here, we just want to make sure that you are up to date regarding the different types of camping that's available here in the valley and where those different types of camping are permitted. So we've included a link to an article in the show notes of this episode. So check out that article so that we can all do our part to be good stewards of this place we love. Okay, this week on Bikes and Big Ideas, I'm talking with Blister reviewers David Golay and Eric Friesen about a whole bunch of things, including our various current injuries. We're going to be talking about some news from the racing world. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different bikes that we've been spending time on. And we're going to be talking about mullet bikes and whether we think they will be more of a thing or less of a thing in five years. Then we are going to be talking about one possibly very dumb idea that could probably end up with David Golay getting sued and a whole lot more. This one is a lot of fun. We cover a lot of different topics and let's just get right to it. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here with Eric Friesen and David Golay. Let's do a little catch up slash current events. We're going to talk about this past weekend's races at, we're going with the pronunciation of, I think I'm just going to go with <laughs> Leo Gang, even though I'm still not sure that's my favorite pronunciation. But before we do that, let's maybe start with a bigger event in the racing world. The growler that Eric Friesen competed in, was this two weeks ago now? Three weeks ago? It was Memorial Day weekend, so that was three weekends ago now, right? All I can think of is I think we hurt our shoulders at about the same time, and so I think that was three weeks ago. I I have that clearer than uh, any other t- reference of time, basically. So, Eric, tell us about the growler, this race you do every year. Sure. So the uh, the Gunnison Growler is a race that takes place in Gunnison, Colorado. It takes place over Memorial Weekend each year. It's uh, Gunnison Trails, our local trail building and advocacy group's biggest fundraiser of the year. Uh, I think it's been going on for 13 years now. Historically, it's been a 32 and a 64 mile race. And uh, oftentimes it's been used by Colorado pros as kind of like a test piece for their early season fitness. Um, Hartman Rocks, where it takes place, is kind of known. It's almost exclusively on single track as opposed to some other high mileage races. And it's fairly technical and demanding riding. And it can also be pretty warm that time of year. So you see a lot of you know, like good blowups this year that happened to be me as well. Um, I was about to say, speaking of good blowups. Yep. So I had a good one this year. I, uh, I typically race the growler on a single speed for a number of years. I did moto medical work out there. Um, but now that I don't have a dirt bike anymore, it's more fun to ride than to be like a course marshal or something. So I've started racing it. Um, this year they got rid of the 64 and they did a 40 instead as the higher mileage of the options, which was 
perfect for me. The 64 is two laps and, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a bit of a grind on number two. Uh, but so the race course runs, um, in opposing directions every other year. This year it started out with a, uh, um, sort of a nice like staging, uh, double track road section. And what that allowed is on the single speed, you get kind of pushed to the back of the pack, which meant early on in the race, I was pushing pretty hard to pass people and get kind of by uh, some folks. About the furthest point from the uh, the race center and the base area and whatnot on one of the harder, punchier climbs, cresting it, I was looking at... Um, the, uh, the leader of the single speed category and was pushing pretty hard to try to catch him cresting up and over the top. There's a quick steep descent on the other side uh, in trying to relax and recover and recuperate as best I could. I was pretty chilled out and managed to just blow my hands off the bars on a smooth piece of single track, immediately jackknifing my wheel and sending me into a, you know, the ground and into a rocket. I think I looked at Strava later, it was like 22 miles an hour and, um, on impact, just stopped dead, pulled my shoulder out of the socket, did a cartwheel, stood up and kind of realized I had a problem. Uh, was thankfully like before my muscles even really started to like tense up, I was able to get it back in and, um, just kind of given the option of turning around and going all the way back or more or less just continuing to ride. I, I chose to continue to ride the rest of the course and finish the race out. Cause I was a little pissed off at that point. Um, finished it out, did okay. Only finished uh, five minutes over kind of the time I was hoping to finish in anyways. So felt pretty good about it and have just been kind of taking it easy since uh kind of killed my spring kayaking season which was a bit of a bummer but i've been able to get a couple mellow rides in since so a couple mellow rides yeah i rode with david while he was here i know i mean you've been riding doctors like back-to-back days uh possibly time is a construct i don't pay a whole lot of attention to i may have done that oh my god okay couple follow-up questions why do you do this on a single speed hartman's is it's like the perfect kind of terrain for a single speed. Um, if you look at like uh, elevation profile after a ride, it looks a lot like a heartbeat um, where Crested Butte is, you know, you might spend five or eight or 10 miles just climbing up before you come back down. Hartman's is short little punchy sections of climbing and descending. So it's a really, it's a great workout. It's kind of a fun way to push yourself and you have a lot of opportunities to recover in the middle of a ride. It's also, you know, type two fun can be fun and so there's a bit of that going on and it's also the only cross-country bike that i own so it's kind of a default or de facto as well <laughs> okay yeah. and did your shoulder injury did this occur sunday was it a yes sun okay so this must have happened roughly like 12 to 16 hours after my crash so, you know, I really think, you know, this was really sweet of you. I think it was like a, like a sympathy crash or something. I, I believe it was a glitch in the matrix that <laughs> caused us both to crash on the same weekend. But My wipeout was, I think, less in a spot where less was going on even than yours. Yeah, it was a bit of a bummer. I wasn't really 
how I wanted that day to go, but that's, you know, that's racing. So I'm glad that I managed to avoid that particular, I guess, glitch in the matrix is what we're going with by uh, having done a different crash on my own about two weeks prior and thereby taking that particular weekend off from riding to recuperate. What was your crash story? Short version, I just went over the bars and hyperextended my elbow when I hit the ground. So wasn't too big a deal, but just was sore and not super functional for a little bit. So I took a little while to rest up. The things we do. Speaking of crashes, we should talk about Leo Gang, as as some of the folks are calling it these days. Interesting weekend of racing, for sure. And I think for me, I don't know, of the, say, top three or four most interesting things, Poor Valley. That was tough. This is a. I'm gonna. This is the most outrageous thing I'm gonna say in this entire conversation. I felt a bit of empathy because the trail I wiped out on, while it's like a thousand times <laughs> less gnar than that Leo Gang track where she wiped out, you know, at a first glance, it sure looks like you. Congrats, you just rode all the hard stuff. Amazing job, and you're now going to win. And uh, that's not quite how it worked out. But I mean, that's racing. You got to, you know, you got to manage yourself and, uh, you know, being blown out is a good way to blow up pretty quickly. Yep. Real uh, Sam Hill at Falda Soul in 2008, I think that was vibes too, where he was up by some absolutely massive margin and then just came in too hot into the last corner and couldn't hold it together. But overall, a super impressive showing from her in her first real elite World Cup. I mean... The crash at the end was obviously unfortunate, but she was absolutely flying and made way better work of that crazy rutted up wood section than just about anybody else did in the women's field. So that was awesome and um, excited to see what she can do going forward. Yeah, for sure. David, did you have any other kind of highlights? Yeah, a couple other things. One of the sort of more mind blowing things for me was that it's in the men's field, it seemed like in the kind of motorway section before they got into the woods, basically everyone was kind of roughly on par time-wise or made some mistake and lost time. And then somehow, but like there wasn't seemingly time to be found in it over the clean runs through. And then somehow Thibaut Deprella came through and put three seconds into everybody on the motorway when no one else was finding time there, which was just, I don't know what on earth he did there. And then the fact that he managed to finish second after crashing in the woods, too, was kind of a testament to just how much of a heater he was on through the first portion of the track. And um, and just another cool, impressive performance from a young gun marred a little bit by a crash, but still resulting in a really good finish overall. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, like just the track itself. It just, I don't know. I mean, it, are we allowed to say at a certain point, like, really, this is something that human beings ought to be attempting to ride bicycles down? Or we just accept that, like, well, here we are. I mean, it seems so condition dependent, too. Like, for the women in particular, it was brutal. And then by the time the men were going, especially the higher qualifying faster guys, it had dried out a bit and some of the ruts were kind of getting ridden in and mellowed out a little bit and it seemed like it was riding better. So, but yeah, I mean, certainly we all remember world champs last year where it was just an absolute disaster through the woods, more or less unrideable. And it wasn't that as bad this year, but it, you know, 
especially for the women earlier in the day when it was wetter, it looked pretty awful still. It's kind of a tough thing, right? Like that was the track that had long been criticized for just being high speed. Yep bike park jumps and then they're like all right you want gnarly we'll make it gnarly yeah (laughs) and maybe overcorrected a little bit but is what it is i guess this is going to be maybe the the second most outrageous statement i'm going to make in this conversation is it weird to say that i felt like troy brosnan's phenomenal run it seemed like he out loic loic like that to me looked like kind of a loic run Except Loic did it, but didn't do a Loic as well as Brosnan did. And I mean no disrespect to anyone in this, but it just, the riding itself looked like that Loic. It's not just straight aggro, right? It's fast, but it's kind of more technical, more surgical, and you just don't screw up uh, somehow through through this messed up course. Yeah, totally. I, think, I forget if it was Rob or Claudio, but one of them said something kind of midway through the men's race that for the most part, the guys who were going fast through the woods looked like they were going fast. It was loose and kind of on the edge and, you know, Amory being a prime example of that. And then Troy came through and looked way more composed and smooth and not like he was on the verge of blowing up, but still managed to, well, win the damn thing, which was super cool too. I mean, he's been so consistently up there at the sharp end of the pack for forever, but I think that was the first race he'd actually won since 2007. So, yeah, especially given how consistently he's been close, but just hasn't quite managed to pull it off. So super cool to see him finally get one. Yeah. And then, well, speaking of Loic, too, I mean, got to factor in that he was racing with a broken foot. So, (laughs) you know, he was clearly on the uh, cannot dab, keep it together program and taking it a little easier than he might have as a result, which seems fair enough. That's a very fair point, and right, and a broken heel. Yeah, and and so to ride the woods section without without dabbing, maybe I should. Yeah, maybe it's like no, that maybe was the best thing he's ever done on a bike, <laughs> like to just stay connected that whole time. I don't know. You're right, and I'm glad you pointed that out. The last thing, again, as somebody who's like still dealing with like a hurt shoulder and like I'm back pedaling on a bike and riding like pretty much just dirt roads right now, but the shoulder does not feel strong and healthy, you know? Watching Omri was like terrifying for me the entire time, right? It's like, okay, he's back and let's see how he's doing. And it's like, he's sure not riding like he's hurt. (laughs) No, he looks like he's doing okay. Yeah, that was super good to see. That was actually the most like nervous and scared I was through um any of the through any of the racers' runs. But uh anyway, what an amazing weekend. It was good. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad we went from the Gunnison Growler to Leo Gang. I feel like that's about I think I think that's about the right trajectory of things. We've got our respective crashes and injuries covered. I think we're ready to talk about some of the some of the bikes that you guys have been spending some time on recently. David where should we start? Yeah, well, since we were just talking about DH racing, uh, might as well start with the DH bike in the mix here. I've been spending a bunch of time recently on the new Trek Session, their new high pivot iteration of their DH race bike, and still waiting for a little bit more of the really proper terrain for it to open up around here, but um, been getting it out a bit and very impressed so far. I think one of the 
most notable things about it is that I've ridden a few high pivot DH bikes before and um, notably the first generation Canfield Jedi in particular felt like it had sort of the benefits of the high pivot layout that you hear touted in really good bump absorption and carry speed super well. But on that bike, the you also had this weird sensation where you'd be kind of trying to preload the bike off of a lip or pump through things. And I think it was sort of down to it having such an aggressively rearward axle path that when the back wheel rebounded, it would feel like it was kind of hanging up on stuff because it's coming so far forward on rebound. And the Trek feels like they've hit a really good balance of making it kind of more rearward than a conventional layout, but not as aggressively so, so that you get that weirdness that gets introduced if you make a super, super rearward bike. And on the, the session, the axle path isn't rearward through the entirety of the travel. It's kind of more rearward than a quote unquote conventional bike, but does actually come back and starts moving forward again, deeper in the travel. And it feels like just a nice balance of those things so that carry speed super well the bump absorption is really good but it doesn't feel weird in the way that really aggressively high pivot rearward bikes can it's also remarkably quiet they just have all of their kind of cable routing and frame protection and chain slap guards and all that kind of stuff super dialed and the bike's just dead silent really smooth really planted and feels super impressive so excited to get it on some bigger stuff as things melt out, but, uh, initial impressions of that are super, super positive. Eric, what have you been pedaling when you're not on a cross country single speed bike? I've been this spring, I've been riding, um, the Trek slash that we've had for a little while, getting ready to be done with that. Uh, also the trail 429 that we've had with the enduro build. And, uh, we recently got a, uh, Ibis Ripley AF that I've gotten a couple rides in on. Um, and have been enjoying all three, yeah, the pivot trail 429 that, uh, both Dylan and I have been spending a bunch of time on, uh, that bike has been phenomenal having ridden the last iteration at outer bike a couple of years ago, it was something I knew I liked already. And then it showed up and, uh, the new vertical shock mount is good. The trunnion I think makes it a little bit more sensitive off the top and having a uh, Fox 36 up front is a very welcome addition. You know, it, it keeps the front end, especially stiff, um, and, and kind of matches the back end of the bike. Well, with 120 mil in the rear, it explodes when you put some power down to the ground. And I've been kind of enjoying the fact that I think it comes in at a 66 degree head tube angle. And I've been kind of enjoying a bike that's uh, not quite as, as raked out, um, especially for early season riding where a lot of, again, it's been at Hartman's or the lower elevation Crested Butte rides where you're not hitting 35 miles an hour on every ride for the most part. It's been great. And then the, uh, the Ibis Ripley AF that came in, um, I've gotten two rides on it so far. Luke and I were out the other night and again, both DW bikes, they, uh, they feel quite comparable. The, the builds between the two are very different. So it's not really fair to compare to that aspect of it. Sorry, which two bikes feel comparable? The Pivot Trail 429 and the Ibis Ripley AF are, they're in the same ballpark of numbers and travel and intent as far as being like, you know, sort of aggressive trail bikes. And again, it's been great. I'm still, uh, I'm getting used to, it's got a fairly short, 
chainstay on it and uh not adjusting to but just you know feeling out the differences um between that and the uh, pivot trail 429 um it's also a size medium frame which might be a touch on the small side for what i would choose to personally own um but uh again at hartman's it's it's been phenomenal I haven't gotten to ride the Ritmo AF yet, um, but it's impressive what they're doing, what Ibis has been doing both with price point as well as like ride quality for an aluminum frame in comparison to their carbon frames, which, you know, is what we've spent a lot of time on, you know, almost exclusively up until very recently. So the Ibis and Pivot make for an interesting comparison to each other because you've got two 120 millimeter rear travel DW link bikes, but at super super different price points the pivot the trail 429 you've been riding what is it the xt slash xtr enduro build which is something in the nine thousand dollar ish range retail if i remember right yeah and it's got carbon wheels i think it is i think it's just under but let's call it that with tax whatever sure something pretty close to that anyway and then what's the build on the uh, ibis that you've been on so the Ripley's build, um, the bike comes with Fox's uh, uh, 34 with the grip damper. And as opposed to the grip two, um, at higher speeds, it does start to feel a little harsh and uh, the compression doesn't feel quite as refined. And so that's a little bit of a, um, you notice that riding them back to back. Uh, but otherwise it's GX build has been performing great. It also comes with some giant Schwalbe tires, which is sort of an interesting choice because they take a little bit more energy to wind up. Conversely, they do a lot to mute out trail noise and they have a ton of traction. So that's a welcome trade-off. And the grip damper at some point kind of is just a fair enough call on a relatively price point build. You know, you can't have it off, but... Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when you consider that that bike, I think it's like 3,500 bucks. I mean, it like imagining like as a 22 year old riding that bike like i i you would be so so excited or anyone who's just not looking to spend a a ton on a mountain bike you would be absolutely thrilled with what you were getting yeah that's kind of what i mean you know it is not the super high-end highest performing stuff but it's also way less expensive than anything super blinked out and does seem like a pretty good value on paper for what it is 100 percent. where are we going next well, the uh, pedally bike that I've been riding most of late and, in fact, chasing Eric around on when he was riding that Pivot 14.9 trail recently is the uh, new updated fifth generation Santa Cruz Nomad. So <laughs> it was uh, not at all an apples to apples comparison with that Pivot <laughs> or Ibis. Um, and we were riding Hartman's on it and... I was certainly feeling the fact that I was on a bike with 50 millimeters more travel than Eric's when we were kind of like on flatter rolling stuff where you're trying to pump through compressions and stuff and Eric's just taking off and leaving me for dead. But um, despite that, overall, it's actually a really impressively versatile bike for being a big 170 millimeter travel, both ends kind of free ride sort of bike. Obviously, at some point, 170 millimeters travel is just a lot of suspension, but for what it is, it's relatively light, granted in the top-end X01 Air build with the uh, their reserve carbon wheels. So it's, I think, $9,600 retail. It's a fancy high-end build for sure, but came in at 
32 pounds and change if I remember right, which isn't too bad for, for what it is. And for being a pretty long kind of slack, very long travel bike, it's unusually nimble and poppy and comes alive at a bit lower speeds. It's not something that has to be going just absolutely flat out all the time everywhere to feel like it's coming alive. And so for having as much suspension as it does, which is for sure a pretty substantial caveat, it is pretty versatile and is a lot of fun. It's not the bike I would choose necessarily if I was looking for a dedicated enduro race bike or something, but for someone who's riding kind of steeper trails, riding more aggressively a lot of the time, but still want something that they can take out for some mellower trail rides too and have it not feel like they're dragging around just a super tanker of a thing. It's super good for that. And one of the things that I found interesting about it is that compared to the Mega Tower, which is Santa Cruz's longer travel 29er enduro bike, whereas the Nomad's got 27.5 wheels, the Nomad feels a lot more kind of plush and way less game on. It's not something that you have to be charging on nearly as hard for it to feel like it's working. So there's actually a very stark difference in sort of the overall feel of those two bikes, despite both being Santa Cruz's with somewhat similar geometry and travel numbers. There, There's a pretty clear delineation between the two, which wasn't sure if would be the case or not, but has certainly proved true. Well, this might be a good time to ask you guys about the new Santa Cruz Bronson. I have to say, David, you and I talked about this like real briefly, but when this announcement came out, Again, this is just kind of an anecdotal, uh, very subjective thing here. But I felt like I saw a surprising amount of pushback. I guess my question is going to be, was this a kind of extremely vocal minority that was bummed out that the new Bronson is now mixed wheel, 29 up front, 27.5 in the back? I was, I guess, just a bit surprised. And again, maybe whenever I happened to look on, you know, the social medias, I was catching all the the ire of the minority right there. But um, I don't know. I'd be curious to get your two takes on the Bronson going mixed wheel. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably largely the case that you sort of have three wheel size configurations these days between full 27.5, full 29 mixed wheel. And it's hard to please everybody, I think. You definitely have a contingent of people who are still big fans of 27.5 wheels all around. And it's easy to understand how they would be disappointed to see that one of the last kind of holdouts for a longer travel 27.5 trail-ish sort of bike was going away or going to be a, a mixed wheel setup now. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people who have been clamoring for more 27.5 or rather more mixed wheel options that is uh in that kind of space and i bet there are people who are excited about that too and then obviously the 29er crowd is extremely well catered for these days and they don't get to complain about anything yeah it's good to there. it's good to be us <laughs> right yeah i don't know i i think i probably see that as just a case of can't please everybody and I don't know how to weigh like which camp is bigger, the people who are bummed that it stopped being full 27.5 or the people who are excited that it's now a mullet. But or I mean, I guess maybe the answer is you figure out how to do a flip chip and make it both. But that has its own 
challenges and limitations. And so, yeah, I think the real takeaway is just that we're in a world where there are different options and no one bike is going to be all things to all people. And that's just how it is. What are your thoughts, Eric? Change is tough. People hate change. Um, anecdotally, in my rather large circle of riding friends here in the Gunnison Valley, I don't believe I know a single person who's on a mullet bike as their personal vehicle of choice. Um, so I would, if I was guessing, I, w- I would kind of guess, you know, it's, there's probably a lot of people who like that bike. I mean, it's got a, a pretty big sort of cult following and, uh, you know, a lot of those people probably like it in part because of its wheel size and, uh, you know, they're probably going to be holdouts, um, against going to mullet bikes in general. Um, I would probably even place myself in that category. I think it would be harder to sell me on like personally owning one than a standard wheel size, whether that's 27.5 or 29. Um, you know, I would agree with David. There's so many good options out there these days that, you know, hopefully unless you are truly like a ride or die kind of brand loyal person, you know, I, I think you probably don't need to get too up in arms about it because there's, you know, going to be five other bikes that are going to do a great job for you. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool to see, you know, a big brand pushing again, you know, like development, we'll see if it sticks around. We'll see if it goes the way of plus size tires, you know, that that'll be kind of interesting to watch. Um, but it didn't, didn't get my hackles up, I guess, personally. Um, but it also didn't make it more interesting to me as like a a bike that I would look to personally go out and buy. On that thought of if it goes the way of plus size tires, if you each had to wager $5,000, we want to, we want to, you know, get some stakes up here, right? Imaginary $5,000. No, your real 5,000. Like this is, you need to not get this wrong. In other words, right? Like, okay. Okay. Couple of questions. First one, in five years, will the Bronson still be offered mixed wheel standard david first oh boy um i'm gonna say no on that one no eric yeah i mean that would what be basically another design site like another four-year design cycle probably not so two more iterations we'd, we'd be on our second or third iteration from right now ish right they would have released the next iteration and they would be working on the subsequent. Um, yeah, I, w- I would, I would be surprised if they keep it as such. Um, I would bet against that. Yeah. My kind of bigger take on mullets is that having experimented with them a little bit, not as much as I could have probably, I mean, we're going to see more bikes rolling out with them, I think. I think they make the most sense for people who mostly want to be riding a 29er, but are kind of due to height or leg length, have a hard time getting off the back of the bike in really steep terrain on a 29er. And so I think they're going to have staying power for DH bikes and the like, where you're on longer travel bikes that are meant to be ridden in really steep terrain but I'm less kind of sold on the idea for more mellow trail bikey sorts of stuff. And so I think we're going to see some experimentation with them 
for shorter travel bikes here as the idea is kind of popular and trendy. But I think it's going to die down on the shorter travel end of things, but persist for DH bikes in particular. So in that sense, to put words in your mouth, David, which I'm very much about to do, I heard you say that Santa Cruz just mulleted the wrong bike. They should have mulleted the Nomad and left the Bronson 27.5. Uh, no, I think the Bron- I think the Nomad should say 27.5 too. I mean, they've got a mullet V10, which I'm all on board with. That already did that and that checks out. But no, I think the 27.5 wheels are a big part of what makes the Nomad the Nomad. And it's just a relatively playful, nimble bike for having the travel it is and the geometry that it does. And I think that ought to stay 27.5 to keep the character that it has. And that won't be for everyone to be sure, but it's a good bike for some people. And I'd leave that alone if I were Santa Cruz. Okay. Second question for you all. This one, we won't make it a $5,000. You got to put down $1,000 of not fake money, real money. So you probably still don't want to get this wrong, especially if you messed up on your $5,000 bet, right? You've already said you both think that in five years, the Bronson will not be a mullet bike. So your $1,000 second question here. So if the Bronson is back to being let's say they revert it i mean they can it's going to be a 27.5 or a 29 i imagine they would revert it back to a 27.5 according to the two of you would they then bring the bronson back to 27.5 and just release a new trail bike not a bronson but an all-new bike that's mulleted the mulleted trail bike that david doesn't really think ought to exist eric Man, they already have a big fleet of bikes. It, it's I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sitting in Santa Cruz's marketing office looking at their numbers, but it's hard to imagine that uh, specializing that much or diversifying that much really starts to make a whole lot of sense, even for a big brand like that who does move a lot of volume. You know, you hear about how expensive molds are and R and D is and you know, everything that goes along with that, there has to be probably some break even point where, you know, the volume of bikes that they're going to sell just, um, just doesn't make sense. Uh, that being said, you know, you could, you could certainly see them doing it. You know, they have, uh, they have pretty uniform design language across their whole range. And, you know, it, it wouldn't seem to be that difficult to kind of plug in the numbers that work well and you know a suspension design that's been around for a long time and and make that come off without a hitch pretty easily either so where's your grand Uh, going i think that i think that trend is going to recede so i would say in general probably no new bike that's a mullet bike in from santa cruz in the trail category i think we'll all be on to something else by then uh that's where I'd throw my thousand bucks. Okay. David. Yeah, exactly what Eric just said. I think they've got a big enough range already. And I think the mullet trend's going to fade off a little bit and that I, I would go with no. And fade out a bit and, or push to more DH oriented, big travel bikes. 
Right. Yeah. Kind of stay there, but not really be as much of a thing for more trail bike sort of stuff. Gotcha. That's my guess. Okay. Well, I think that is going to wrap up the bike portion of our program. What about any big ideas? Either of you got anything for us on the big idea front? I think I do. So a couple weeks ago, I was editing Dylan's flash review of the Pivot Trail 429 that we were talking about earlier. And in that, he had a comment, something to the effect of saying that he was handing the bike off to Eric and was really going to miss it. And so that kind of had me thinking about the bikes that I've reviewed recently that have I've relinquished and miss and want back in my life. And uh, the first thing that sprung to mind for me on that was the Marin Elroy, their super long, super aggressive hardtail that I reviewed earlier this year. And so I was sort of thinking about that and why I missed it, because it's kind of a weird thing. It's a super aggressive enduro hardtail with a 63 degree head tube angle and a really long wheelbase, which seems like kind of a oddball thing that doesn't necessarily make a ton of objective sense. And the idea that popped into my head, and I'm curious your take on this, is that I think that enduro hardtails are the mountain biking equivalent of telemarking. You're using like goofy, slightly outdated equipment on purpose, and it doesn't make a lot of objective sense. But if you're into it and kind of it clicks for you, there's a real sort of Zen experience to be had with it. And it's great. And to be clear, I'm saying this is someone who really likes enduro hardtails, but has never actually tried telemarking. So I'm definitely talking out of my ass here a little bit. But just based on how people who are telly dorks talk about it, that's my theory. What do you guys think? I mean, as someone who openly single speeds, I can't <laughs> can't really throw a lot of shade at this idea that it would certainly fall into the realm of making things more difficult for the sake of making things more difficult. And that has a big appeal to a lot of people. And I could easily get on board with this big idea. Wow. Okay. Making things more difficult for the sake of the soul. This is soul riding, right? Yes. Uh, Right. Soul riding. Huh. Well, I mean, I'll give you that soul riding. Uh, if you want to, you know, have that for your new company, uh, if you want to really, you know, take this to the next, next level, David, and you start making your own, your own versions of, uh, telemark bikes. <laughs> you know, there is actually a brand that already exists. Soul cycles. So I have, <laughs> I think that's a, it. true. It's ironically yeah. I'll be hearing from my lawyers shortly. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah. You should send them a cease and desist for sure. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate the time and the perspective as always. Here's to crashing less, <laughs> lighter tires, grippier tires, soul riding, trying to not get crushed by the cease and desist that's about to bang on your door <laughs> from soul cycles. Yeah, and um, I think that's all we got. I think our work here is done. Perfect. I think we nailed it. Excellent. Well, as always, guys, appreciate it, and I will talk to you both very, very soon. See you, Jonathan. See you, Eric. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts, 
to keep this whole thing going and growing. I also want to say thanks to David and Eric for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Gear 30 podcast, where we will be continuing our series on the current state of helmet tech and R&D. So subscribe to Gear 30 if you haven't already. There's a ton of good information coming out from this series on helmets. And then we will catch you again tomorrow. All right. Bye, everybody.